quite my tempo. It's all good. No worries. Here we go. You don't know if she has friends. You don't know what she does all day, and you don't know your wife's blood type. Sure, y'all are married. I'm not done. I also want to stop our discussion over prices. This will save time. So when I say that a particular number is my lowest price, that's my lowest price. And you can be assured that I arrived at whatever that number is very carefully. Now, when I say that I want these things, I mean that I want them. And I don't want to have to ask again. Okay, hello, everyone. And uh, welcome to Shot Reverse Shot's third birthday party. Um which I know is our birthday party because we started with an end of the year episode in 2011 and here we are doing another one in 2014. Um, hello, Ed, are you all right? Yeah, I'm very, very good. Um, looking forward to Christmas and looking forward to uh, celebrating the end of the year by talking about everything good and bad about it. Yeah, yeah. And like I say, it is our birthday, so we feel celebratory more than anything. We try not, be, try not to be too negative. Um, so yeah, three years, Ed, do you think... We'd ever kind of get this far. Uh, I think once we got past the the hump of the first year, mm-hmm. there was no stopping us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our um, second year, we don't like to talk about. Um, <laughs> like you know, all bands have a difficult second album. Um, I don't know, well, kind of, we didn't really have any kind of uh, downtime. It's just been gold from start to finish. Um, and this year has been gold to start to finish because it's been bloody great, hasn't it? It has. It's been a really, really great year for film. I think you and I were saying it's it's probably the best since 2011, all those years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, uh, since, uh, you know, 2011 was a film that was a year that had a lot of films of, you know, really great quality coming from every, uh, sort of pretty much every strata of, of uh, filmmaking, you know, great foreign language films, great American films, low budget, big budget uh, from everywhere. And, Anywhere you looked or anywhere you were kind of digging, you were, you could find something interesting. You don't exist anymore. Excuse me? You're no longer in the system. Well, just put me back in the system. I can't put you back in the system. Why? Because you don't exist. I can't put someone who doesn't exist in the system. But I used to be in the system. Not according to the system. In fact, according to the system, you've never existed. Would you wear a shoe on your head? Of course you wouldn't wear a shoe on your head. A shoe doesn't belong on your head. A shoe belongs on your foot. A hat belongs on your head. I am a hat. You are a shoe. I belong on the head. You belong on the foot. Yes, so it is. Um, it was a pretty good year, 2014, also packed with incident. Um, one incident in particular um, is you know, kind of still ongoing. Uh, and I think we obviously did a preview episode at the start of this year, the way we do every year. And the one thing we probably didn't expect was that a movie... Uh, with Seth Rogen and James Franco would, at best, cause a diplomatic incident, at worst, cause World War Three. Yeah, I think when it was announced that they were making a film about people trying to assassinate Kim Jong-un, I think there was maybe a general sense that, you know, this may not go down well, but not in the sense of uh, reprisals. Mm. You know, I think certainly in my case, I was thinking, well... Kim Jong-il never said anything about Team America, as far as I can remember. Let's see thought uh, it was fucking hilarious. <laughs> uh, so it's weird. It's just really weird that uh, his son would react. But then, you know, there, there have been lots of articles talking about how that, you know, Korea, North Korea has been an enemy in a bunch of American films over the last couple of years. Red Dawn, um, White House. No, not White House. And the other one, Olympus has fallen. Mm-hmm. 
and there was no outcry because they were basically ones that made North Korea seem powerful and Team America kind of does as well because it makes Kim Jong-il, made Kim Jong-il look like he could, you know, control the world. Whereas uh, Kim Jong-un, based on what's been said about the interview, just comes across as kind of a ridiculous figure. Mm. So just for anyone who might have missed it, if you've been living under a rock, essentially the film, the interview was made, it was scheduled to premiere. And then part of a kind of a story that had been going on for a couple of weeks, a, a hack into Sony um, and some very kind of embarrassing uh, emails kind of led to some very red faces for some of their executives. Um, uh, kind of, it kind of turned even kind of worse than that. I mean, it was uh, at that point, it was, you know, the, the story was really about kind of uh, um, that, you know, the hack of, of Sony's personal email, work emails and stuff. Um, and people were very upset. The newspapers were reporting it and kind of, the journalism ethics there, but then all of a sudden, when it came to around the the premiere time of the interview, um, there were threats made by the same group of hackers who said who basically kind of evoked nine uh, eleven. Uh, and in a crazy turnaround, Sony pulled it, uh, and then obviously no cinema chain or video on demand chain would touch it. Yeah, and they were kind of put into a corner because they said, I think the theaters, big theater chains behind the scenes seem to have uh, pressured them to say, you know, can you let us out of showing this film? We don't want to be held liable for anyone getting hurt. And then when those chains did drop it, they just cancelled the release altogether. I think as a kind of like crying uncle, you know, just saying, you know, please make this stop, make all of these horrible things that are happening to us stop. Um, but that is just uh, fueled the country even further because everyone's saying, well, you can't give in to them. Why don't you release it? somehow uh and, and yeah as of as of the time of recording no one has stepped forward to try and get the film out there in whatever form fuck it i'll do it send it to me sony i'll i'll, I'll get a projector <laughs> my wife's got one of the little handheld projectors i'll just uh, project it onto the side of the north korean embassy in london um then see then we'll see what happens um yeah i i, I find the whole affair just kind of uh, you kind of, if you kind of told us that at the start of the year, you would just kind of laugh at it. But like, it's just getting more and more serious by the day. It's like it's like headline news. It's and it's it's a film starring like James Franco and Seth Rogen. For fuck's sake, it's not it's not like you know, well, it's not like a prestige filmmaker made it. That's what that way Ed. Yeah, it's it, you. You would not have expected at the start of the year that John McCain would be coming forward to defend a film made by Seth Rogen. Uh, saying that it should be released online for free, mm. uh, essentially advocating piracy. But we've we've entered a, a bizarre uh, funhouse mirror world <laughs> in which all of these things are happening. Yeah, and I really do hope they resolve itself soon because I want this episode to air. I don't want to, you know, wake up tomorrow morning and find you know, you know, the Red Army moving in on 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 us. You know, that would be terrible. All because of James fucking Franco. <laughs> uh, anyway um so yeah that was that's kind of big i hope that kind of resolves itself um uh what else happened this year kind of we saw a kind of very strange shift in the way that the movies are marketed and advertised we saw some really bizarre and kind of quite troubling uh methods of selling films uh we saw the jurassic world uh kind of trailer but it was preceded by a teaser for a trailer uh which kind of seems to be kind of movie marketing going through the looking glass seeing as a trailer is supposed to tease a film and we had a, a trailer for a trailer uh which was kind of odd and then that was kind of followed by 
the James Bond announcement, which was a live stream announcement of the title. Uh, and yeah, it was kind of just, it, it's been a weird year for movie marketing. It, it really does feel as if uh, it's getting more and more ridiculous. Mm. And there was a really good article by Mark Harris in Grantland where he was talking about a lot of things in Hollywood, but he, he, he had a great phrase, which was, the thing is no longer the thing. The thing is the next thing. Essentially yeah. saying that now the entire way that the that Hollywood seems to be structured is not about getting people excited for the film that's coming out, but for like the next five films in Marvel's cinematic universe or saying it's not even advertising the film. Advertising trailers seems to be taking that thing to a, a slightly ludicrous uh, uh, degree. Mm. And you said to me at the time that um, like things like the Marvel announcements and, and definitely the, the James Bond thing starting to resemble Apple product launches. Uh, these kind of hugely hyped announcements of things that are happening possibly in the future. And I mean, the Marvel one, yeah, cool. They came out and said, yeah, we've got a sequel to this film coming out. We've got a sequel to this film coming out. Oh, we've got a stand. And then you can look at a map that they released, a kind of a timeline of what is it, like 22 films over like eight years or something? And just like, what? They're planning, they're, they are putting all their eggs in, in that particular basket? Well, for Marvel, they kind of don't really have anything else they can go with. It's not like they're going to start doing uh, like romantic comedies. Yeah, maybe <laughs> they kind of. But even their like their production rate is some. It is something like two films a year for five years, uh, and then when you throw in DC, I think over the next five years there is something like forty different comic book films coming out. Oh yeah, that's what I've seen. I've seen the one with all the comic book films planned out, not just the Marvel ones. And it's kind of it's ridiculous. It's like you know, I made the joke before when we did the Marvel episode, you know, based on that that bit in Demolition Man where he goes out for dinner and he was like, Why are we eating a Taco Bell? And he said, Well in the future all restaurants are Taco Bell. In the fucking future, every film's gonna be a Marvel film, but it's gonna be a superhero film. And I was like, down with this sort of thing. You know, let's you know this is not really what we want to hang our hat on. I'm I'm hoping that uh, they start to get weird with it after a while, and that they give like uh, I don't know, like Nick Broomfield <laughs> uh, one, and just makes like a mockumentary about the lives of people who've been uh, harmed by superheroes. Because there's lots of various uh, comics out there which are essentially about people who's who are on the periphery of everything that's happening with superheroes. Mm. I kind of feel like. At this point, that'd make for an interesting, like, weird low-budget feature, as opposed to, like, seeing more superhero people save a city from a giant flying platform. Mm, I'd, I'd like to see uh, Bellatar's Fantastic Four, <laughs> and that'd be quite something. The three hours long, just you know, ends with just kind of someone eating a fetus or something. That'd be pretty, pretty <laughs> grueling. But yeah, uh, you kind of talk about that with the, the idea of this whole shared universe thing is kind of, uh, kind, kind of loco, hasn't it? In uh, in 2014, we've got obviously the Marvel Cinematic Universe is a thing, uh, and now the DC Cinematic Universe is also a thing, and now we're having what going to have the Universal Monsters shared universe. That's now something, and uh, Robin Hood style shared universe. I mean, really, what's what's going on? Yeah, I think of those, the uh, the Robin Hood one seems like the one that's least likely to take off. Mm, who else is he uh, going to share a universe with? Yeah, it's not like uh, Will Scarlet was ever a character that everyone felt really deserved his own adventure. 
Mm, who are, what are the middle-aged superheroes can you think of? <laughs> There's not really that many, is William there? Tell. Is William Tell from around that, that point? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, it's going to be very archery-heavy, isn't it, this, uh, this, this kind of shared universe? Um, yeah, and the year of the archer was 2012, so they've really missed the boat. I'm sorry if I'm popular, Mike. Popular. You know, I don't give a shit. Popular? Popularity is this bloody little cousin of prestige, my friend. Um, what was uh, big at the box office, Ed? Run us down the, the, the winners. Uh, yeah, number 10 was uh, How to Train Your Dragon 2, which earned $618.9 million. Mm, wow, that's quite a lot. Um, I enjoyed that film. It was rather good. Yeah, I liked the, the first one. Lots of great flying animation, lots of heart. Uh, didn't do as well as the first one in America, but worldwide it was huge. So that's kind mm. of a, a story that repeats itself often uh, this year. Uh, number nine was The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. which earned, Yeah, that was uh, decent. That one earned $623.2 million. Eighth Interstellar, which earned six hundred twenty-six point four million. That's kind of surprising, uh, given how kind of weird that film is on one level. But then I suppose it is Christopher Nolan, and it's got space in it, so yeah, sure. Uh, seven Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, seven hundred eight point three million. Hmm. Oh, it was all right. Did you enjoy that one? I like that one. I did. I did. I liked it a lot. I, I think that it uh, threw off a lot of the restrictions of the first one and got to embrace being kind of big and epic mm, mm. uh six the amazing spider-man 2 709 million uh that was fucking rubbish uh, <laughs> just uh i saw that uh the other week and like it was just so long and uh kind of m- kind of a real mishmash of tones and too much going on and just i i really do struggle to find I can't distinguish between this kind of uh, version of Spider-Man and the Tobey Maguire one. You could literally cut scenes from one to the other and it wouldn't, wouldn't make a difference. Yeah, the only difference is that the wheels fell off it far quicker. Like, mm, absolutely. the first one instead of by the third one. Yeah, although Andrew Garfield is an excellent super, uh, Spider-Man, better than, uh, better than Tobey Maguire. Yeah, I kind of feel like he and... Uh... Martin Freeman are two people who got the short end of the stick in their various franchises in that they're in the worst films of their franchises, but they're giving some of the best performances. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Captain America is number five, The Winter Soldier, 714.1 million. Hmm. I think given that Captain America is kind of the, one of the lesser Avengers, I'm surprised at how well that does against some of the other films on this list, but yeah, I thought it was solid. Hmm. Yeah, I did like the uh, kind of throwbacks to sort of 70s conspiracy theories even though that ended up making it turn into sort of like a 90s bond film mm-hmm. yeah uh yep number four is x-men days of future past which earned 746 million um very much enamored with that film i like that an awful lot i i thought um x-men first class um was dog shit um <laughs> but uh so i had like zero expectations for days of future past um, but I thought it was fantastic. I thought the, the, the scene in the kitchen with Quicksilver um, was an awful lot of fun. Um, um, one of my favourite scenes of the year. Yeah, and great use of uh, Jim Croce, which is why people uh, will have heard the opening strains of that over the opening of this episode. Mm, um, great, great scene. Uh, third is Maleficent, which earned 757.8 million. 
Now that's baffling because <laughs> Maleficent is not very good. No. Uh, not really an origin story we desperately needed. Uh, I mean, I watched it for sake of completion. Um, just like someone had seen, you know, like five years or ten years ago, and was just like, hey, those Lord of the Rings films are popular. Uh, let's pick something fantasy roughly that people kind of can hang an idea on, stick a big battle in it for no reason with walking trees and, and trolls and shit, um, and hopefully no one will notice. But a lot of people noticed and went to see it in their droves. Was, yeah, really, really can't get my head around that. I, I do think that a lot of it came down just to the kind of perfect casting of Angelina Jolie as Maleficent. That feels like sort of something that... Uh, seemed like it should have happened a long time ago. If you mm. were going to have any live-action casting of a classic Disney villain, she's pretty high up there. Uh, second, uh, much better, is Guardians of the Galaxy, which earned 772.2 million. Yeah, we, we talked about this on our Marvel episode. Uh, some of the most fun I've had in the cinema all year. Um, great fusion of uh, you know interesting material and a great director. I really like James Gunn. Um, and uh, best soundtrack of the year, uh, by far, I think. Yeah, just oodles and oodles of charm in that film. Yeah, and uh, it makes it kind of great to bring uh, the music of Redbone to a new generation. So uh, hats off to Mr. Gunn there. What was number one, Ed? I think we all know. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, a film that didn't have oodles of charm. Transformers Age of Extinction, which earned $1.87 billion worldwide. Fuck off that is <laughs> depressing as shit i actually take it back i want north korea to bomb us uh off off the face of the earth because we don't deserve to live if the best we can do each year is a fucking transformers film a film in which again i watched all of these films for the sake of completion so we can talk about this and transformers 4 is a film in which a giant robot car lorry sorry turns into a man and wields a sword and rides a flame uh, breathing Tyrannosaurus Rex that's a robot and it's still boring <laughs> that's that's that takes doing that that takes real talent yeah that one was I mean it was still one of the better of the Transformer films oh well, yeah it's, it's definitely not as bad as number two but yeah, and better than a few things are yeah <laughs> um yeah but no that's 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 a sorry state of affairs I think, I think kind of you were saying before we went on that it was a bit of a down year in, in, in all in the box office, wasn't it? Yeah, if you compare it to the last couple of years, only one film made a billion dollars at the global uh, box office, which, I mean, that's obviously, uh, that you know, that almost never happened a few years ago. You know, Titanic was the only billion earner for a very long time, but now you expect at least two or three. Last year we had uh, Iron Man 3 and Frozen both managed it quite handily, and then there was just a bunch of films that earned like 900 million 800 million whereas this year as people will hear from that there's a huge gap between number one and everything else mm. uh, and a large part of that is that the box office in america box office in america has been generally a lot lower uh films like the amazing spider-man 2 and godzilla both had this 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 very weird behavior where they opened to 900 uh, to 90 million dollars so huge opening weekend and then they finished with only about 200 million, which is uh, not unprecedented uh, behavior for blockbusters, but it's rare that it happens to so many blockbusters in a row. Mm, so, yeah. so audiences uh, 
seem to be very, very fickle this year compared to uh, most years. Uh, one gets the impression that with some of the films that are lined up for next year, that probably won't be the case, and we won't be sitting here saying that, um, given some of the films that are slated for 2015. Um, but you, interesting you should mention Frozen there, because it's something that I've kind of noticed this year, that it almost feels like this year's biggest film is Frozen, which came out last year. It has kind of seeped into the kind of cultural zeitgeist, like, uh, well, like no other Disney film I can remember, kind of since going back to, you know, kind of the 90s kind of re-Renaissance kind of, really. I mean, it's 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 kind of, like I said to you before we went on, like, uh, it's just done a couple of weeks at the Albert Hall, big, like sold out sing-along screenings. It, it's been screening in the sing-along format at, at theatres around the country. It's it sold out a thousand seats in my local cin- in my local theatre, not even cinema, um, and they they'd sold all the tickets before the brochure had even gone to print. Uh, and then, you know, it's a year after its release. Every everyone has got it on DVD. It's just taken off to a huge degree. Yeah, I can't think of any film this year that rivals it for cultural ubiquity, mm. and uh, you know, it earned a huge amount of money at the start of the year because it was released late last year in most places and then really seemed to take off this year. But then Let It Go has been sort of omnipresent. And certainly here in Florida, being that close to uh, Disneyland, you can really see the impact that it has had. You know, if you go there and you see the kids running around and looking at the characters, uh, Elsa is far and away the most popular one. Mm. You know, that's the one that everyone wants to go and sort of get their picture with or get the, the autograph of. And, uh, yeah, like you say, it's hard to think of a Disney film that's had that much of a cultural impact for quite a while. Yeah, which is bullshit because, like, uh, we all know that Tangled is a much better film. Oh, it's uh, so much better. Yeah, Um, well, that's a shame. Like, you know, that, yeah. What can you do? You've got a hit song sung by, what did Travolta say at the Oscars? Bindinda Banzel. Adele Nazim. (laughs) Adele Nazim. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, well, she's been she's been ubiquitous this year, and uh, so is Adina Menzel, who sings <laughs> it. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so yeah, Frozen, um, arguably the biggest film of the year, even though it came out last year. Um, also, got a bit of Star Wars fever this year, didn't we? The uh, the trailer for The Force Awakens, which I believe will be uh, a sizable hit next year. I will uh, put my uh, kind of box office uh, prophetic head on and, and say that I, I can see that one doing quite well. Um, the trailer dropped, and uh, what did it get on YouTube? About like fifty million views or something ridiculous. Yeah, I think it was the the trailer that had was the fastest to reaching pretty much every record they had, like quickest to five million views, ten million views. It just destroyed everything that had previously uh, every previous trailer that everyone was really excited about. Although I can't think of what those trailers would have been. Mm. So yeah, so it's really reignited Star Wars fever in a way that I think had been bubbling under, certainly in the way that every morsel of information about the film was being poured over by various news sites over the course of the year. Uh, various mm. news sites, of course, being code for slash film. Um, <laughs> yeah. With every sort of non-news item being recorded, reported in great detail, every potential casting choice. Um, and and the the way in which the internet lost its shit over the Star Wars trailer. It's not even a trailer, the teaser certainly mm. felt like the culmination of that. But also seemed to take it to a whole new level because 
there's a big difference between people talking about a film and being able to see even like a handful of clips of it. You know, that, that ratches it up quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got the feeling that it's going to kind of dominate next year. Um, even though people are much more uh, cautious of it um, than they were of like the, the Phantom Menace, for example. I mean, I can remember what that was like. That was, you know, hysteria for the best part of uh, seven months waiting for that to kind of uh, come out um, and just kind of constant barrage of, of Phantom Menace, Phantom Menace, Phantom Menace. But this feels a bit more measured. But, I, you know, I think that as soon as we get another trailer for it and a bit more information about the film, then I think people are going to lose their shit. Um, but yeah, so we, we've got that to look forward to next year. Um, you know, kind of, I, I, I saw the other day that there's a, the Tina Fey, Amy Poehler movie is, is it called sisters? Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're releasing it on the same day as star Wars and Amy Poehler was like, we're going to kick star Wars his fucking ass. Like, you know, <laughs> no, no, no one else is this brave. Like, you know, we've got a good film here. So yeah, I kind of, we'll see how that pans out. Who? Star Lord, man. Legendary outlaw. Oh, I'm uh, Sam Jackson, you know, from Jackie Brown. It's not even, yeah. I'm not going to bury another Batman. Another Batman? How many Batmans has he been buried? How many are there? I've buried 14 Batmans. I've buried so far. 14 Batmans. And a little pointy ears I'm in the box. I'm not going to bury another nylon cloak. How you doing, Mr. Nice Quinn? Get your fucking ass. Who had a good year and a bad year? I think we kind of touched on it with. Um, with uh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, but Mr. Chris Pratt, um, someone we've loved for a long time in, in, as Andy Dwyer in Parks and Recreation, um, he's had a great year. I mean, he started off with the Lego movie um, and then kind of did Guardians of the Galaxy, um, bringing his own brand of kind of schlubbish charm uh, to the big screen, uh, but also being a big hero. Uh, he's got Jurassic World coming next year. He's kind of, he's having a Tatum year, isn't he? Yeah, he's he absolutely is. You can really see him... Uh... He seems to be trying to make himself, or, or, or Hollywood seems to be slowly turning him into this generation's Harrison Ford in some way, you know, kind of embodying a particular kind of uh, fun, uh, uh, non-threatening but undeniable masculinity, which is mm. not something that I would have said about Andy Dwyer as of a few years ago, but certainly since he got into great shape uh, and but didn't lose his kind of essential goofiness, um, I think that's made him into a very, given him a very unique uh, screen presence in kind of the modern, the modern world. Mm. His, his, his line in, in Guardians of the Galaxy is one of my favourites where, you know, he talking about how messy his ship is and he was like, you should get a black light in here. It looks like a Jackson Pollock painting. <laughs> is there. It's brilliant. A uh, great little throwaway gag. Uh, how to kind of get a, uh, you know, seminary fluid gag into a 12A, but fair play. Um, I shouldn't say seminary fluid and gag in the same sentence, should I? We're going to get all kinds of weird, weird hits. Um, but yeah, he had a great year. Um, Jack O'Connell is someone I thought had a great year. He's yep. a British actor who um, uh, kind of started off with kind of young skins and, and misfits and things like that. Um, and he's kind of graduated big time. He's had some really great films out this year. He had uh, 71, uh, which I believe is out in America next year. It was out here early this year. It was a really good film, um, a kind of an action film without a hero he kind of just he kind of plays that not an anti-hero either just a, you know someone who's in the wrong place at the wrong time and has to kind of do anything he can to survive um he was really great in that he was really great in starred up a film we both really liked that was uh it's one of our kind of 
nearly random films of the year. It was really superb, that film. Yeah, I mean, the the prison drama is something that's been done to death uh, at this point. But I think his uh, unflinching take on the character there of like a young offender who's put into uh, the general population because he is just too violent <laughs> to be with sort of kids his own age and ends up in the same prison with his dad, produce something that is... You know, really, really brutal. There's a lot of stuff in it that reminded me of uh, of Bronson, the uh, Nicholas Winding mm-hmm. uh, Reffin film, particularly uh, him kind of soaking himself up to fight the guards as they come in to attack him. Um, but you know, there's a kind of a, a this brutality to it, but there's also this real kind of uh, not really heartwarming, but there's certainly a, a tenderness to his relationship with his dad and the way that they are clearly two incredibly violent men and the dad is trying to do right by his son but they can't fight their their tendencies Uh, Mm. i think it makes for something that is really really powerful and really really uh enjoyable as well yeah you saw him in unbroken as well didn't you the angie and jelly film yeah it didn't really get great reviews but um it uh certainly kind of uh gave him a platform which to kind of uh, for everyone to see him and looking at some of the stuff he's got coming up he is moving up the list uh quite quickly yeah skins has definitely become sort of a great farm system for british actors it seems <laughs> who'd have thought it given how obnoxious skins is as a television program it's the, um, the british neighbors yeah absolutely um uh lord and miller had a great year um mm. the, the the people who can turn any old shit into gold it seems uh you know give them uh give them 21 jump street as an idea um you know it's a it's a it's an old tv show can you make a kind of postmodern comedy out of it sure great okay can you make a sequel out of it all right yeah oh it's awesome uh it's kind of uh they can just they, they've got the Midas touch haven't they, those guys can oh can you make a film that's based entirely on a toy like lego and it not come across like a really smug advert okay sure lego movie fucking brilliant is there anything they can't do, those guys? Uh, the only thing that I think they can't do because they wisely walked away is make sort of a third Ghostbusters film. I think uh, yeah. th- they were apparently offered it or were very close to getting it and they decided not to. And I think mm. that uh, that was very wise in their, on their part because even though they can't, they have shown that they can revive uh, revive pretty much any property or, or take any property and make it into something that's funny and kind of sweet and has kind of a really interesting subversive subtext uh the idea of taking on a franchise like that that's so beloved you know is is kind of a poison pill and although mm. i i'm sure paul feig and his kind of all-female take or supposedly all-female take will be interesting in its own right um yeah i don't i don't envy him and i think that the the uh, lord and miller were right to look at that and say maybe we'll try something else yeah yeah um, they'd probably do right. Who had a bad year? I mean, obviously everyone at Sony had a bad year. Oh, yeah. um, especially, is it Scott Rudin, the the uh, the guy who had most of his emails leaked? Um, Scott Rudin uh, and Amy Pascal, who was the, I think she's the CEO. She's very, very high up and a lot of mm. her emails went leaked and they were uh, very, sort of very embarrassing. I heard that Pascal had to personally email everyone and just say, now, I'm really sorry I might have said something awful about you. And given that, like, you know, some of the people she had to, like, email were, like, the Weinsteins, I can kind of imagine that they weren't too complimentary. But, you know, it's not really her fault. 
uh, or anyone at Sony's fault, but you know they're not particularly uh, uh, thrilled at what happened, and they'll be glad that 2014's over. Um, uh, Mr. Shia LaBeouf um, probably would have had a better year had he stayed in Transformers Four, uh, which is not something you can say about everyone because he had a stinker. Yes, uh, he was in a terrible Lars von Trier film, which is not mm-hmm. uh, is is never a good start. But he was also, you know, he was. A, pu- a figure of public ridicule for uh, plagiarizing something, and then he seemed to play uh, plagiarizing a, a Daniel Cloves short film, uh, a comic for a short film he made, and then he played a weird cat and mouse game with uh, journalists by issuing statements, which then turned out to be plagiarized. Mm-hmm. So he's either uh, insane or he's involved in some incredibly weird art project. And then yeah. he ended the year with saying that he had been raped as part of his art project, which is, you know, just a, an absolutely uh, horrifying thing, assuming that it's true. Um, mm. I've no reason. Well, that's it. Like, for Sheila LaBeouf, if he claims it's true and it is true, then that's awful because he's been raped. Mm-hmm. If it's not true, then it's awful that he said he was raped. Yeah, so it's just a free. His whole year has just been. Uh, it just feels like a complete implosion. Uh, mm. Not that his, you know, I think he he seems to get really really sick of uh, of celebrity in general, but this year seems to be him uh, really kicking out against that and being just publicly vilified for it as a result. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, also, uh, Jason Reitman, a filmmaker mm. that we've both uh, kind of spoke kindly about in the past, um, he ate a big old plate of dick on toast, didn't he, this year? Yes, he he started the year with a film called Labor Day, which was uh, delayed. It was meant to be a 2013 release and was delayed. And when it was released, it had nothing but scorn poured upon it as this kind of weird melodrama about erotic pie making. I mean, that's not mm. what that's not what it's primarily about, but that's all anyone talks about. And then yeah. he ended the film, ended the year with Men, Women, and Children, which has cropped up on some of the. Uh, many worst film of the year lists, you know, kind of anti-internet screed, which has been compared unfavorably to uh, Reefer Madness. Um, <laughs> considering that just three years ago, you and I were both, we kind of put Young Adult on our best of 2011 uh, list. We did. Uh, it's just kind of crazy to see how this year has been kind of his undoing. Yeah, and it's. I I would love to say I really hope that it isn't. You know, it's just too. You know, most most directors have a couple of duffers in their career. I just hope that you know he just had them both in a row, um, and you know this isn't a kind of because young adult is so good. Mm. Uh, Up in the air is very good. Thank you for smoking is really good. Um, uh, so it's it, it's. I just hope that he's just having a bad trot. Yeah, me too. I hope this doesn't uh, represent just an inexorable decline for him. Even if, uh, you know, he always has his live readings, which continually get really good uh, reviews, and uh, you know where he takes scripts of existing films and then assembles great casts to read them. Like most recently, The Empire Strikes Back with mm. J.K. Simmons and Aaron Paul and Luke and uh, uh, Mark Hamill, which was uh, is kind of a dream cast to do a, a fun live reading of that. But unless he's going to start releasing them in cinemas, uh, they might be. I'd hate to think that those are the only uh, good notices he's getting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't even know he directed 
um, men, women, and children. And I just saw like some headlines saying Reitman flops or whatever. And I just assumed it was Ivan Reitman mm. who had decided to kind of make a serious film and it had gone terribly. But no, it was Jason Reitman trying to do something in the realm of what he'd ordinarily do. Um, and it just kind of exploded in his face because it really has attracted some. And it just it just seems really fucking dumb. I mean, I've certainly not seen the film, but like just the basic premise of it and, you know, you know the, the kind of the clips you can see on television just seems like you say like reefer madness like a really alarmist film made about the perils of internet dating and kind of social networking it kind of felt like an after school special mm, and one that's at least five years too late <laughs> well yeah absolutely um so yeah that was kind of a quick rundown of, of what was going on in the film world okay i have a quick diversion into the world of television what's your name my name is marcy what is your name My name is Mora. There's something called the in-brain theory, detectives. It's hysterical. And in so saying, I have effectively made sounds which, when put together, constitute words which can then be turned into sentences that make noise to travel into your ears, and that's 45 minutes. I've done it. Goodell out! Hey, where are you? I'm at that dog shelter. You can just get a dog. Alana, I can't inflict upon a dog the crazy life of a dentist. So I will let the gods decide my fate. I demand a trial by combat. I don't know where to buy no gay presents. Well, I, I don't know what a gay present is. Uh, usually, what couples do is they just they just register at a store, huh. like a like a straight couple would. Is it a gay store or just a regular store? This certainly is an upsetting number of pancakes. Um, it was a big year for the alternative networks. Obviously, we've seen um, things like Netflix uh, start programming their own stuff, but. We're kind of moving into the realms of where people like Amazon, and yes, Amazon, the people who, you know, deliver your Christmas presents and you buy cheap books off, are making some of the best television out there. Yeah, they uh, they produce, they had their first kind of critical breakout this year in a show called Transparent, where uh, Jeffrey Tambor plays the patriarch of a sort of upper middle class Jewish family in LA who... Uh, decides who who announces that he is uh, transgender and that he's transitioning from a a man to a woman and the effect that that then has on his family and uh you and i are both saying it's just fantastic it's really funny and really heartfelt and really scabrous and it has all of these wonderful things and it looks you know gorgeous it's got this uh, independent uh, film aesthetic to it which uh, which is really really cool and looks really great uh, and yeah, so it is really st- when they announced that they were getting into the uh, into the content creation game. I think there was a certain degree of skepticism after their first pilot season, but mm. you know, two years in and they've already got their first kind of not even just hit like all time great TV show. That's that's really yeah. exciting. Uh, it felt a lot like the TV version of um, film that was out a few years ago that I really liked, uh, Beginners. Mm. Uh, had a very similar feel to that. Uh, um, you know, very similar in some of it, um, but it also in the in the Amazon Prime uh, uh, kind of pilot season, uh, I was very much taken um, by the TV show Red Oaks, which I think has been picked up in terms of production. It's um, uh, produced by Steven Soderbergh, directed. The pilot was David uh, David Gordon Green directed it, and it starred uh, like Craig Roberts and Richard Kind and Jennifer Grey. It was a really really. It's basically Caddyshack, the TV show, but kind of a bit serious. Unless goofy, so yeah, I look forward to that one. I didn't really see a great deal of uh, TV, new TV this year, 
I have to say, I was kind of catching up. I was watching The Shield for a lot of this year, <laughs> um, which is quite a lot of episodes to work through. Um, but uh, yeah, what, what caught your eye this year and what kind of stuck out for you? Uh, this year was kind of a banner year for Comedy Central, uh, who for years and years have been putting out some of the most interesting uh, comedy stuff on um, uh, on television, particularly since uh, I can't remember who the guy is who's currently in charge of it, but it was the guy who directed the Will Ferrell film Semi-Pro uh, many years ago, which isn't a great mm-hmm. film, but he is now the head of Comedy Central, the head of development there, and he seems to have taken the idea that what they need to do is they need to find talent uh, and just let them get on with whatever they want to do. And um, that definitely seemed to take place this year where he had uh, something like Review, the show with Andy Daly, where he reviews... Uh, life experiences which was a kind of surreal and heartbreaking uh show about a man who pursues his passion and destroys his entire life which uh, for anyone who's familiar with andy daly's stand-up or for his his work on comedy bang bang uh will not be a surprise that it's quite funny and incredibly dark uh then you have uh a broad city which is a, a brilliant show about uh, two young women living in New York in their mid twenties, which is, you know, you could say it's kind of like a down rent girls because they have no money and they're just slightly disgusting people. But it, uh, it, it kind of feels like the closest America has come to making its own uh, peep show, uh, except for the lack of a first person uh, conceit. Mm-hmm. And uh, you also have uh, Netflix produced another great show in BoJack Horseman, which was a very funny animated show that was also a really bleak uh, character study about depression, which uh, was kind of a great surprise. Uh, and uh, HBO had Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, which was a great uh, addition to the late night circuit that did something new and interesting and built itself around its host persona. And uh, they also had Looking, which was, I thought, just an absolutely amazing show about uh, the, the lives of three gay men in San Francisco uh, from Andrew Hay. And unsurprisingly, that uh, was really, uh, w- that had the same sort of quality of his show Weekend, which you and I both really liked and included on the Ultimate 100. So there was lots of good stuff this year. Hmm. It was interesting that you should kind of mention Late Night because everything's changing in Late Night in American mm. television now. They've got a. Uh... Uh, James Corden replacing Craig Ferguson. We've got Stephen Colbert replacing David Letterman. It's it seems like uh, all the kind of the old dependables are, are kind of shifting off. Yeah, this week both their shows ended, uh, and that was quite a an emotionally draining couple of days for people who are fans of their work. They both went out on their own terms, but it was still kind of sad to see them go. Particularly uh, Craig Ferguson, who has consistently for a lot of people been considered the best. Uh, of the late night show let the late night guys just because he was so anarchic and so completely uninterested in uninterested in pursuing the form that everyone else was working within uh and so to kind of lose his his sense sensibility in terms of what seems like will probably be a lot more traditional with james corden uh, mm. it does feel like a real shame although james corden has appointed uh, Reggie Watts is his band leader, mm. so I think, you, like you said earlier in the week, he's made the transition from imaginary band leader into actual band leader. Yeah, which is definitely a uh, a step up, and uh, <laughs> uh, hopefully that will infuse it with at least a certain degree of weird energy, which uh, could be quite interesting. 
Yeah, yeah. So that's TV uh, in 2014. Uh, we're now going to concentrate on two things. Uh, we're going to talk about the best films of the year. Uh, we're going to crown our, our, our champ of the year, uh, which, as everyone knows, is the most important honour you can bestow upon uh, a film. Um, but first, we need to get the unfortunate business out, out of the way of talking about the worst of the year. It's been a pretty good year for bad films because I've not seen an awful lot. I've seen a lot of kind of middling films, um, but only a few real stinkers. Um, obviously, Transformers 4 don't really think they need to think about or talk about that any more than is, is necessary. Could you please not drive a wedge between employer and employee? Hold on, I thought we were partners. Look, I came up short, okay? I had to buy her a prom dress. Do you want me to deny her a prom dress? Might as well, you denied her a prom date. No, I offered to take her and chaperone. Nobody wants to go to the dance with their dad. It's weird. You can kind of just imagine how bad that is if you haven't seen it and have seen any of the other Transformers, ball, uh, Transformers films, just imagine it. But with a different cast, it's just, you know, loud, obnoxious, borderline, kind of unintelligible... Uh, sexist, racist kind of robots, really. But with one laugh out loud line, which you and I yes, talked it, about. It, yes, it has. It's when uh, a giant robot turns into a dinosaur, and it's kind of a reveal. Uh, one of the other Transformers says, wow, I was expecting a giant car or something. <laughs> um, which is funny, but thinking about it, the person who says it is a racist caricature of a samurai car. Yeah, voiced by Ken Watanabe. Mm. So given given the, the stink that he was kicking up about Godzilla and trying to keep that true to its Japanese roots with the, the whole idea of that kind of nuclear thing happening, um, given how intrinsic that is to Japanese culture and identity, um, that seems like a weird job to take. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm just assuming that Michael Bay could only name one Japanese person and just went yeah. straight for him. Mm, yeah. yeah, the other one was WWF superstar Yokozuna, who <laughs> has probably shuffled off this mortal coil. Um, so yeah, there's that. Um, I'd like to talk about a film that uh, I heard about through friend of the show, Ryan Finnegan. Um, uh, he kind of told me it was kind of almost beyond belief. Um, and I watched it and he was damn right. And I had to kind of pass it on to you and you saw it and you saw the same thing. We're talking about a film called Winter's Tale. Enter! Got the word out to everyone, 500 for his head. And the horse? Same. Seems like a lot for a horse. Well, that's because it's not a horse. It's a dog. Which has been renamed in Britain, New York Winter's Tale. Uh, could you kind of summarise it, Ed? It's about a guy in New York in the early 1900s who works for a demon played by Russell Crowe, uh, mm. devouring the scenery at an alarming rate. Russell Crowe also works for Satan, who is played by Will Smith, not giving a shit about anything mm. that's happening. Uh, he, uh, Colin Farrell falls in love with someone from Downton Abbey who has TB, but apparently it's not a infectious form of TB because she's just hanging around with people all the time. And then she dies, but he has a miracle to give up. So he lives for a hundred years and he loses his memory. And then he wakes up and he meets her younger sister who should be dead because mm. she should be a hundred years old. And she's played by Eva, Eva Marie Saint. Yeah. Um, and there's a flying horse who's also a dog. It's insane. It's really hard. To, the film, it's just so hard to talk about that film and not sound like you're a lunatic. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing that you didn't mention, Ed, which is uh, the one thing I'd like to point out, is all of that, Russell Crowe being an Irish kind of gangster who is also a demon working for Will Smith, who is a devil, Colin Farrell on a flying horse, which is also a dog, a woman with TB that doesn't seem to affect anyone, even Marine say, all that stuff pales into insignificance due to the fact that it is played 100% seriously. <laughs> It is not, as as uh, Rainer Wolfcastle might say, it's not a comedy. <laughs> uh, it is it is kind of beyond belief. And uh, I mean, I I wasn't familiar with the source material, but if you if you kind of do a little bit of reading about it, it's a, it's a kind of book that's not been knocking around for ages. Uh, Martin Scorsese, who I think we can point out knows a thing or two about making films, mm-hmm. he said the book is quote unadaptable. Uh, so that is a gauntlet thrown down to someone like Akiva Goldsman, who has directed zero films before this. Uh, he did write uh, some terrible ones. Um, what, did he, what did he write? I, I know he wrote A Beautiful Mind. What else did he write that was dreadful? Uh, he also wrote uh, the uh, Joel Shoemaker Batman films, I believe. There we go. Um, so he thought, well, you know, Martin Scorsese, he, if he's going to pass on it, I'll pick up the gauntlet and I'll take it on. And holy shit, uh, I don't know what anyone was thinking being involved in that. Um, it is I don't I don't know how at the end of any day they would go back and look at the dailies and go, "Hey guys, you know we're doing some really fucking awesome stuff here. This is brilliant. Um, let's put more of the flying horse in." Uh, but Jesus Christ, it's fun to watch. It is. That's the thing that rescues it from uh, from uh, complete iniquity, which is that. It's so baffling that you can't help but just watch it in just kind of awe of how incomprehensible it is. And that is mm. that is in itself quite entertaining. And that sets it apart from uh, our worst film of the year, by some considerable margin, A Million Ways to Die in the West. I like your bustle, by the way. Oh, yeah. I really love that the most alluring fashion statement a woman can make today is to simulate a fat ass. That is a simulation of a fat ass Thank right you. there. If I was a black guy... This is the meanest trick you could play on me, because I, because I'd be like, oh my god, look, there's a fat ass, my favorite, and then I'd lift it up and I'd be like, ah. Oh. Yeah, there's no redeeming feature whatsoever. A completely joyless comedy with barely any laughs, any good jokes, no structure, uh, a ton of cameos that are completely stupid and pointless, um, just makes you feel bad about yourself for watching it. Mm, yeah, I mean, I saw it before you and then when i saw it i said you had to watch it for this very discussion (laughs) and i'm sorry about that ed but um it's a film which like the thing you notice instantly because seth mcfarland directs it and obviously he's kind of directed ted before and you know like family guy and shit um but like he directs it in a way that like if you watch the film like anyone who knows anything about filmmaking knows that a scene should start as late as possible and end as early as it can you get the information across and that's what you need to do uh so for instance a man walks into a bar talks to a bartender and leaves you don't need to see him leave you don't need to see him walk into the bar all you need to do is show him talking to the barman right we get all of the extraneous bits that have left (laughs) that should be left out of other films just there so scenes just start with no energy nothing at all oh he's walking into oh now they're having a conversation in a pub just start in the pub. It's, it's It feels like the first cut of the film. And it's so flat. And when you've got a comedy, something that's relying on energy and dynamism and chemistry 
it's a film that has none of those things whatsoever. Yeah, and it's also it, it's structured on a completely ridiculous uh, and counterintuitive point, which is that the whole thing of it is that Seth MacFarlane, who stars in the film, which is a, a massive miscalculation because he's not a natural on-screen presence, um, is uh, he's like a sheep farmer who meets Charlize Theron, who's this mysterious woman. To him, is a mysterious woman in town, and like he discovers she's a really great shot, and she tries to help him win his girlfriend back, and all of this stuff. But we know from pretty much the very beginning that she is the wife of Liam Neeson, and she's like a gunslinger and everything. And that takes the air out of the entire story because you're just waiting for him to figure it out from the get-go. But also there are moments that are meant to be like big comedic set pieces, like when she demonstrates that she's an expert shot, where you watch it and you think, that's not a surprise to anyone. Because we know she, we know she's palling around with a vicious like killer. Of course, she'd be a really good shot. And you know, there's just loads of things which are really make for really terrible storytelling choices uh, mm. that completely undermine the comedy of the, what should be comedy. Mm. I went back uh, earlier today to look through um, some of my tweets that I, some of my very pithy tweets that I no doubt sent whilst watching it um, in a very snarky way, um, showing the film no respect whatsoever by tweeting through it. Um, and for that, I'm very sorry. Um, but I did uh, realise, I've kind of forgotten I'd written this. Um, I said that I'd just witnessed a scene where Seth MacFarlane was outacted by a plate of corned beef, <laughs> which is not, uh, you know, a ringing endorsement. Um, he is not uh, the kind of uh, best screen presence, is he, really? No, and there's just a smugness to the film that is really uh, unpalatable. Like, the basic idea of it, which is like, this is a Western, but one of the characters has this 21st century snarky attitude towards it. That's, you know, that could be a Saturday Night Live sketch that would wear out its uh, welcome after four minutes. Mm. And uh, Moving Ways to Die in the West is like 120 minutes long. And like the, some of the like little ideas in it, like him and Giovanni Ribisi are walking down the street and they talk about how hoops and sticks are rotting kids' brains which is quite a, a funny little conceit, you know, that people always have these concerns about new technologies. But, you know, that's within the first 10 minutes and then it just keeps hammering the same thing over and over again. And it's just, mm. it's just appalling. And, and people you like turn up in, like Sarah Silverman mm. is, is kind, of, kind of almost unbearable in it. And you've got uh, Neil Patrick Harris, you know, someone who is, you know, the most likable person working. Uh, you know, he has to kind of undergo the indignity of just shitting into a hat for a minute and a half, <laughs> which sounds funny when I say it, but mm, it's not funny. Yeah, the only part of it that sort of works is that he, he shits in one man's hat and then he sort of reaches to another guy to grab his hat and the guy kind of bats his hand away really gently. And you think, that's slightly funny. And then suddenly he keeps doing it four or five more times, which... Is kind of Seth MacFarlane's entire uh, entire aesthetic uh, mm. crammed into a single like thirty seconds of a film. Yeah, and the audiences voted with their feet. It didn't do particularly well, did it? At the box office. No, it it pretty much tanked. Um, I think it covered its budget, but not marketing or anything. So it's probably still in the red. Mm. And he's got Ted Two coming next year, so he's going back to what he knows, uh, Old Faithful, uh, voice only. That's probably the way that. Uh, he should probably uh, uh, stick to it uh, from now on. Um, but yeah, uh, A Million Ways to Die in the West, uh, our worst film of 2004, team. Um, 
joining the ranks of Movie 43 as uh, kind of yearly bad film. Although Movie 43, I think, is probably going to, that's probably going to hang around for a long time. One of the all-time worst films that we've seen in our in our short lives. Yeah, I think it certainly reaffirms what I thought after I thought for a long time, which is the worst worst films are bad comedies. Because at mm. least with a Winter's Tale, you can laugh at it. Whereas yeah. it, you can't laugh at a million ways to die in the West because it so utterly fails at the thing it's trying to be. Mm, absolutely. And now I really want some corned beef. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, on to uh, the good stuff. Uh, let's talk about what was the best of a really cracking year. Um, uh, 2011, we picked The Artist as our best film. 2012 was Searching for Sugar Man. Uh, and last year was Francis Ha. And we're going to set off and see what's going to join those uh, esteemed colleagues on, um, like I say, the uh, uh, ultimate accolade of being voted to the Shot Reverse Shot Film of the Year. Uh, we're not taking this too seriously. It's a bit of fun, so don't complain or I'll cut you. Um, we've picked 10 films here. We kind of um, uh, kind of voted, uh, chucked a load of films in that we'd all picked and kind of assigned them a points value and to kind of shake up and see what we thought the best 10 would come out. And this year we've um, not only got a really good list of, of films that didn't make the cut, um, we've, we kind of have very few films difference. This is the first time I think we picked about 16 films between us, didn't we? Yeah, I think a large part of that is is probably the last couple of weeks we've both been scrambling to catch up with what the other person has seen, mm. uh, and that's probably informed it quite a bit. Uh, but yeah, that's, there's some really good stuff that we left out. A film that I think I really wish I'd rewatched was uh, Calvary, which was yeah, that was one of my favourites. Yeah, I was very high on your list, and I remember really liking it when I saw it in the cinema. But it's been so long that I couldn't, but I didn't feel I could accurately put it up higher. But that was, mm. that was yeah. one I really liked. Was a the kind of the blackest of black comedies you're likely mm. to see this year, and really, really stunning performance from Brendan Gleeson um, in that, and pretty much every other Irishman in it, high <laughs> right down to Dylan Moran and um, <laughs> and uh, Chris O'Dowd. Um, then uh, the other films that didn't make the cut, we've got uh, Startup, which mentioned earlier, um, Wolf of Wall Street, which is you know fuck me, that was a great film. That's my, for me, that's Scorsese's best film since Goodfellas. Same here. Um, yeah, uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, a great Jarmusch film, Vampires, um, etc., etc. Obvious Child, which is a film uh, I saw recently that um, I think will probably grow in my memory as being kind of uh, better than it is. Jenny Slate turns in a fantastic performance in that. Yeah, and uh, a continuation of uh, Gabby Hoffman's great work this year. She was also amazing in Transparent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Lego Movie, I mentioned that was great. Ida, that was pretty good. Snowpiercer, one of the fucking weirdest films I think I've seen all year. Film that we we've been waiting to turn up for two years. It very nearly looked like it was going to be three years. It's still not been released uh, in the UK officially, but that was mad as a bag of tits. Um, that was a crazy film. Yeah, shame. Uh, how shame it didn't. Uh, shame it wasn't released two years ago because I think it probably would have cracked the top ten in two thousand and twelve. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 22 Jump Street. I mean, I don't think uh, I've seen a funnier film this year. I think that the the, uh, the scene in which, I won't spoil it, but Channing Tatum figures a certain thing out in in uh, in um, Ice, Ice Cube's office is, I laugh like a fucking drain for hours after that. Every time I thought about it, a massive smile on my face. It's hilarious. Plus, I keep doing, doing his kind of fisting slash glass ceiling um, <laughs> mime, which I think is absolutely fantastic. And we, um, we, yeah, that, that had no right to be that good. We've uh, we've also both adopted using Kate Blanchett as a Kate <laughs> as a pseudonym for Cat Blanche. Yeah, yeah. To each other. 
Um, Edge of Tomorrow, uh, that, you know, should have been terrible. Turned out to be pretty bloody good. Um, you know, what else? The Wind Rises, Jesus. We didn't even get that on our on our long list. The the, the last Miyazaki film, that was pretty fantastic. Mm. Yeah, well, it was um, a strong year. Very, very strong year. But none of those films uh, made the cut. So let's start talking about the ones that did. So in at number 10, we have the film Nightcrawler. Since when did cold water become faster than Laurel? Huh? What was it thinking there? I didn't ask that to hear myself speak. Because, you know, cold water only has six lights. Yeah, but Laurel has places to pass. I can't get around this person until Ventura. It's the same argument, man. I said this route. If you wanted to take Laurel, you should have said something. I, I thought s- that you worked in other factors. If I didn't think that you could do better, I wouldn't ride you so hard about the routes. I think you know that, Rick. I think it may just be possible that I have a higher opinion of you than you have of yourself. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Nightcrawler is a film that kind of crept up on me, uh, kind of pun intended. Um, didn't really hear much hype about it. It wasn't a big kind of festival uh, buzz collector. Um, but yeah, just kind of uh, slowly start to pick up astonishingly good word of mouth for being um, quite kind of bitingly satirical, um, but also just so fucking creepy. Yeah, it's a great character study of... Uh a character played by Jake Gyllenhaal who looks really ill, <laughs> scarily, scarily thin, lost a huge amount of weight for it. And you, sometimes when those uh, physical transformations happen, uh, it kind of feels gimmicky and for show. But uh, this one, it really did emphasize the idea of him as just a character who's kind of empty, just a complete sociopath who'll do anything for money and uh, and fame, but, and who talks in kind of creepy self-help aphorisms. Um, I compared him in my review to uh, Rupert Pupkin from uh, The King of Comedy in that mm. he's kind of a, a chancer on the outside, but the, the difference is that uh, people take him, uh, Lou Bloom, seriously, which is uh, is really terrifying. Yeah, it's it's a great LA movie as well. It's mm. uh, kind of very much kind of called to mind uh, Michael Mann. A lot of it kind of, most of it shot at night and, and kind of LA kind of glistens like a kind of sweaty kind of post-coital whore <laughs> probably the best way I can kind of describe it really and it, it, it's just it was a very seedy film um and like I say it's satirical but perhaps it's it's you know uh I think I read a review somewhere that said it was a little bit broad to be kind of to work as like a you know network style satire but it talks about you know the kind of opportunistic journalism that people like TMZ uh kind of promote it's 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 you know pretty on the nose yeah, uh, it's definitely on the nose, but I feel that the performances in it from, uh, certainly from uh, Gyllenhaal, who I think is is turning into a really great character actor after a few years of struggling to be like a Hollywood leading man. I think his, his last couple of performances, he's really confirmed that he's great at playing uh, twisted obsessives, which is, mm. uh, is, is a, a great development for him. But also Rene Russo, who hasn't been around for quite a while, uh, is is really great as the owner of the, the manager of the station that he sells his footage to um she does a really good job of kind of selling her desperation for ratings without coming across as desperate like it's always bubbling under the surface and she's trying to maintain her composure but when she sees something that's truly kind of bloody and guaranteed to get huge ratings she she really kind of lets it known how much it means to her um and uh, uh Riz Ahmed who uh is a uh, probably most Familiar to people from this podcast, his role in Four Lions was mm. uh, was fantastic as uh, Bloom's 
uh, assistant who goes along with him and thinks that he's a bigger deal than he is and gets given uh, some some really horrible work to do. Yeah, kind of the, literally the worst internship you could possibly <laughs> go on. Um, but yeah, it was a really, great, really great to see Bill Paxton there as well. He's had a couple mm. of films out this year. He was in Edge of Tomorrow as well. Um, and yeah, good to see him playing this. Although I saw someone saying, nice to see him reprising his role from Weird Science, which is, you know, <laughs> is kind of like a certain kind of slippery shithead that, uh, yeah, he kind of does play. Um, but yeah, like a really kind of low key film. Um, but I think one that will kind of stick around. It's appeared on quite a few end of year lists that I've seen. Um, but yeah, mostly kind of through that kind of central performance from, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, definitely worth catching. Um, so yeah, Nightcrawler. Um, number nine on our list is something altogether different, although does feature a central performance by someone playing an absolute shit. Um, we're going to talk about Listen Up, Philip. Would you mind standing? What is this for? Could you open it as though you're reading and look at me again? I don't want to do that. Why? That's a poor idea. Why would I be standing up with my jacket buttoned reading? It's just a prop. Yeah, I can see that, but I think it presents a very false depiction of me. I'd much rather this picture at least seem honest. You know, Tolkien wouldn't allow himself to be photographed writing because he didn't allow anybody to watch him work. Same idea here, just slightly modified to suit me. Philip. Um, a film about literary pretensions, I guess, uh, starring one of the most pretentious literary twats you ever liked to see on film. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a great uh, dissection of a certain kind of uh, of author people who consider themselves who, who obviously consider themselves to be in the tradition of like a john updike or a uh a philip roth who clearly believe that the way to be a great author is to be an absolute prick to everyone they know <laughs> uh, to style themselves after it i think that jason schwartzman is such a great choice for that because his character is in some ways kind of like max fisher grown up yeah uh, you, you have that sense of having the same sort of literary pretensions and that same inability to really care for other people, uh, except for, you know, sort of mentors. Uh, in this case, Jonathan Price doing some of the best work he's done for years as, you know, like I say, like a, like a Philip Roth-style uh, figure. Uh, and the film's just wonderfully scabrous, such great dissection of a particular kind of entitled um, sort of white male uh, idea. Um, it's also kind of structured really interestingly, kind of narrated like a novel that's unfolding in front of you that, that splits off into various viewpoints from different characters. Uh, really great use of that. And it's Eric uh, Bogosian who does the voiceover, isn't it? Yeah, and he's, his, his tone perfectly suits it. Um, and, and that structure also means that there's a great middle section, probably my favourite part of the film, where it's just about Elizabeth Moss who plays uh, Phillips' uh, girlfriend initially and then breaks up with him because you realize he's an absolute twat um and she i think is absolutely fantastic in it she's really great at uh portraying someone who's kind of suddenly freed up from being in a toxic relationship who tries to kind of find some meaning for herself and kind of fumbles through it um, mm. a great performance by Kristen ritter as well who i'm a big fan of yeah she's uh due for a kind of a breakout year next year she's in quite a lot of stuff isn't she Kristen written next year but like you say um elizabeth moss really great to see her on the big screen um doing kind of she could so easily be just continually cast as uh in the kind of the peggy olsen type roles um but she um kind of really 
takes what could have been uh, a relatively thin character and does great work with it. Um, in at number eight um, is a film which uh, which kind of stars two people that we're both enamoured with, so it's no surprise that we uh, kind of are fawning over it. We're talking about the Skeleton Twins. Have you read Marley and Me? Yeah. Sad. Why is it sad? You don't know what happens? No, that's why I'm reading it. Oh, sorry. What? Nothing. What, does the dog die at the end? No, I didn't say that. The fucking dog dies at the I end. I didn't, I'm not saying anything. Look how much I had left. Uh, the two people in question are two of our favourite Saturday Night Live alum, uh, Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig, who uh, play um, estranged siblings who are both brought together by separate coincidence, coincidental near-death experiences um, and have to kind of rebuild a relationship. And if that all sounds a bit kind of Garden State, wishy-washy, uh, indie, isn't Aunt Family's kind of odd um, uh, type uh, cliché, uh, it rises above it pretty quickly and and kind of carves itself out a little niche as something quite wonderful. Yeah, a, a large part of it is that it's, you know, like we were saying, I think when we actually previewed this, we were talking about how that premise has a certain uh, kind of indie wood uh, idea behind it. You know, just that that premise sounds like it could be unbearably quirky, but they approach it with a real uh, kind of emotional honesty um that you know at times gets very kind of brutal when they start talking about their lives and you start learning why they've been estranged from each other for so long and what their home life was like and you know history of suicide in their family and things like that but also uh i think a big part of what's so great about it is that it is so uh the, the chemistry between them as you'd expect from people who work together for five or six years on saturday night live and clearly enjoy cracking each other up uh, with kind of late night insanity, uh, they really uh, have such great chemistry together, and they are able to make the darkness really, really funny without losing sight of the characters. Mm. But it's and I've I've been waiting a long time. I think I said this when we were talking about Nebraska before. And Will Forte gets a good dramatic role in that, and so does Bob Odenkirk. And I said I've been waiting for years for uh, Hader to have um, you know a decent dramatic role. And as much as it's not Schindler's List, this film, um, it's something that he really gets his teeth into. And even though he's playing, a, a, you know, a gay man, and one of his most famous characters is, is Stefan, um, you know, we see him acting. You know, you know, acting his fucking socks off. Yeah, he he is great at the little small moments, and I think he he, you can really see. Uh, in the various relationships he has in the film, obviously with Kristen Wiig, but also the way that he relates to uh, Ty Burrell, who plays someone he knew from his past, and uh, and uh, Luke Wilson, who plays Kristen Wiig's kind of uh, well-meaning but essentially quite dumb husband. Um, mm. is that you can really see him kind of modulating his performance with how he works with each other in a really uh, interesting way. And you also have uh, just really, really... Uh, some just some really really great moments, and and even though it is a film that has lots of great drama in it, I think you know it says something that the thing that everyone talks about is a really great uh, bit of physical work between the two of them, which is where they both uh, lip sync to a song by Jefferson Starship, mm. uh, which is kind yeah. of immensely joyous. Yeah, I mean the, the film, as much as it is serious as it were, um, 
you know, they, there's still room for them to like goof off in there, um, but never feels tonally kind of erroneous. Mm. Um, it, it fits perfectly, and that is a lovely moment in um, in the film, and a lovely moment in films full stop this year. Um, our next film is something altogether different, altogether uh, more sinister, um, and a film that absolutely shit us both up. Uh, we're talking about The Babadook. Australian horror films, uh, long and storied history of those. Um, this one kind of came out um, and uh, this year and people would just say, have you seen it? Have you seen The Babadook? And you kind of do, it was best to go in not really knowing much about it. Um, and now I'm terrified of top hats. <laughs> yeah, it's a film that has really built a huge reputation in a very small amount of time, um, particularly from people like you know William Friedkin tweeting about it and saying, it's one of the best horror films ever made, and he made The Exorcist, so he has a mm. he, he's something of an expert on it. But I think what's what's amazing about it is how uh, even though the idea of someone finding like a cursed book and being haunted by some weird uh, demonic ghost like figure that that's a premise that has been done a lot in a lot of horror fiction. I think what really sets it apart is that the film in some ways feels uh, owes a lot to something like Roman Polanski's work. You know, you can really mm. see in Essie Davis's performance. And I think that she is, she is my favorite performance of any film this year. I think she's absolutely incredible as a, as a single mother trying to cope with her young son, who's kind of, uh, who's got some social developmental difficulties. He's, you know, has difficulties uh, interacting with other children and it's just very troublesome. Um, she uh, is great at being someone who's, as the film goes along, gets increasingly more tired and is being menaced by this uh, creature that clearly represents her fears about the world and her grief over her husband's death and all of these things milling under the surface. And I think that the claustrophobia of trapping them in this uh, in this small space for so long uh, really does uh, it really does amplify the horror of what's going on. Mm. You mentioned uh, like repulsion. There's a bit of Rosemary's Baby in there as well, oh, yeah. um, and then also weirdly a bit of Home Alone <laughs> uh, with some of the gadgets the kid uh, concocts up to fight the Babadook. Um, but yeah, um, a horror film that um, you know is a, you know about the horrors of, of kind of grief and, and and kind of losing yourself in in, in the mire of of that. Um, and yeah, just kind of it does it. It's very beautiful and kind of tender as well at times. Um, and it kind of makes the scares um, just kind of more powerful. You know, kind of just completely sold on on that relationship and and that situation. And you know, that kind of horror of being a parent and not understanding your kid or what they need, and and kind of you know being terrified at the fact that you know they they kind of can't seem to behave and kind of hurt other children. It's it's just kind of all those anxieties and neurosis boiled down into a monster, really, isn't it? Yeah, and the monster itself is brilliantly designed. It has a look that is uh, just just feels like something out of a, a book that you must have read as a kid. You know, mm. it, it has this weird uh, cultural specificity to it where you've not seen it before, but you feel like it's something that you've always like heard people talk about. Mm. I think the best, and you never really see it in the film either. Mm. 
yeah, it's shown just enough to be terrifying every time it shows up. Yeah, and I shit you not, Ed, I watched it during the day because I was too scared to watch it at night, so I had to wait for a day off, and I watched it at like 10 in the morning, so I thought, you know, nothing bad happen, nothing bad could happen to me. I watched it, I was scared, um, and, you know, generally got on with my day, and I shit you not, like two hours later, someone walked past in a top hat, and I lost <laughs> it. I fucking lost it. It was horrible. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it really has. Um, it's one of those ones that does kind of... Uh, uh, insert itself down one of those kind of cracks in your in your your kind of psyche and just kind of nags away at you and kind of making you look over the sh- over your shoulder every, every now and then which is what all the best horror films should do yeah uh, absolutely uh, i think it is it's a modern i think it's going to be a modern classic i think people are going to turn to it as an example of how even the kind of old ideas that people are familiar with can have new life to them if they're applied uh, perfectly Mm. Uh, the Babadook, um, terrifying, um, kind of exhilarating, but also, um, you know, not without a great deal of emotional weight. Um, so yeah, well worth seeing. So please do. Uh, don't just take our word for it. Listen to William Freakin. He did direct the Exorcist, like I said, but he also did direct Jade. So approach with caution. <laughs> um, okay, uh, the next film on our list, uh, getting to halfway through now, uh, is a film that many of you might be surprised will be higher. Um, but, yeah, you're wrong. Um, Boyhood, Richard Linklater's epic film from earlier this year. Talk to me. Samantha, how was your week? Uh, I don't know, Dad, it was kind of tough. Billy and Ellen broke up, and Ellen's kind of mad at me because she saw me talking to Billy in the cafeteria. And you remember that sculpture I was working on? Well, it was a unicorn, and the horn broke off, so now it's a zebra, okay? But I still think I'm going to get an A, right? Mason, uh, how was your week? Well, Dad, you know, it's kind of tough. Joe, he's kind of a jerk. Actually, he stole some cigarettes from his mom, and he wanted me to smoke them. But I said no, because I knew what a hard time you had quitting smoking, Dad. How about that? Is that so hard? Dad, these questions are kind of hard to answer. What is so hard to answer about what sculpture are you making? It's abstract. Okay, okay, that's good. See, that's, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know you were even interested in abstract art. I'm not. They make us do it. Um... Yeah, I mean, we talked about it quite a lot on the uh, can you know too much about how a film is made. Um, but all that aside, we, you know, we kind of did try and we did kind of say it's kind of um, can't really remove how Boyhood was made from judging it itself. But still, uh, packs kind of one of the biggest emotional punches of the year. Yeah, I think that it, in some ways it, it's uh, kind of a microcosm of a lot of what is great about Richard Linklater's work, which is that his best films are often um, about observing the small moments of life and finding the profundity in it. And, mm. uh, or, or in just in the joy of conversation, the joy of human interaction without some kind of big uh, kind of plot kind of driving it all. And that's essentially all boyhood is. It's just a collection of moments filmed over 12 years of a kid growing up and of the changing landscape of this uh, of this family uh, over a long period of time, and 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 incidentally also kind of tracking the cultural and political ch- trends of America, and I think that uh, you know it, it's really fascinating as a timepiece. You know, like recognizing things. Like I remember how huge it was when you know the the last Harry Potter book was published and things like that, um, which plays a part in the film. But really, it's just about uh, capturing the feeling of growing up, and I think it does that beautifully. Yeah, it does, and uh, it's kind of interesting to see as like everyone's um, 
end of year lists are coming out that even though it was released quite early in the year, it's kind of rock solid one, two, and three in most lists. Yeah, I think that's a, a good sign of how much it affected people emotionally. You know, a lot of critics, uh, I think it's a kind of impossible to watch the film and not compare it to your own life in some ways and your own experiences growing up or your own experiences as a parent. You know, certainly it seems to have emotionally affected a lot of people who who have kids the same sort of age uh, in a very palpable way. But, you know, even even like someone like myself who's a few years, who hasn't doesn't have kids and is like 10 years older than uh Elon Coltrane's uh, character, um, I could still recognise a lot in it about you know it's like my family moved around a lot as a kid because my parents ran pubs so they could often uh, we'd often have to move house and things like that, and so I I really related to the sense of dislocation and having to constantly be the new kid in school and things like that, um, and I think that there's a lot in there's so much in the film about the process of growing up and the big and little moments of it that uh, it's very easy to see why people kind of pick it out as something that would uh, impact them in a very serious way. And that's, I think that's a big explanation for why it has lasted so long. Cause obviously the conventional wisdom wisdom is that um, any film, no matter how good released before the end of September will be ignored. I think the fact that people are still talking about boyhood and are still citing it as one of the best of the year is a big sign of just how, huge an achievement it is Mm, absolutely um i'm about to test that logic even further about how uh you know people will forget about films released early in the year because we're going to go back even a little further than that for our next film um we're going to talk about a film called inside lewin davis please mr kennedy take one and we're rolling Second, please. Please, Mr. Kennedy. Up on. I don't want to go. So Um, yeah, it was kind of um, kind of one of the more lower key uh, Coen Brothers releases, um, but you know, definitely as strong as, as as their best stuff, I think. Yeah, I think uh, it was overshadowed a lot by all the other stuff that came out at the end of last year and was a bit more uh, was a bit more high profile. But I, I thought that it was one of their best. I thought it was really great as an examination of. Um, like the Babadook uh, of grief of someone kind of being lost and not really knowing where they want to be uh, a great film about artistic promise not being uh, fulfilled which in some ways makes it something of a, a companion piece to the skeleton twins which kind of had a similar sort of feel of people not being where they want to be in their life um, and I think that uh, it, it confirms uh, what I think has been clear for quite a long time which is that Oscar Isaac is a real rising star because he really grounds that film as a guy who should be completely unlikable and kind of is, but you still have a certain degree of sympathy for him because uh, his things go so badly for him. Yeah. Um, a film for me that even the involvement of Marcus Mumford couldn't derail uh, <laughs> how good it was. Um, and, you know, to be fair to Mr. Mumford, um, the, the duets he sings with, with Oscar Isaac are absolutely beautiful kind of, uh, renditions of old folk standards um, 
but yeah, it's it's a film that um, I don't really think kind of people know what to do. I think it was released on Valentine's Day over here, and I was like, really? Is that is that a good idea? Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of one of their chilliest films, literally. Mm. You know, it takes place in the, what seems to be the coldest winter ever imagined. But also, you know, it's about a guy whose uh, entire kind of every relationship in his life is just completely falling apart. Um, that makes it very dark and very uh, very difficult in some ways. But it's also, you know, like a lot of their films, it's just a really great wry sense of humour running underneath the surface. Mm. Features one of my favourite moments of the year where uh, he's playing the song for the executive, uh, played by F. Murray Abraham. And, um, you know, he, he does this absolutely beautiful, uh, heartfelt rendition of this song. And then just Abraham just takes a pause and looks at him and just says, I don't see a lot of money there. And you're just like, fuck, dude, that's so caustic. Yeah, I think uh, it's a sign of how much that film has had an impact in that that, I've seen that line repeated so many times in so many different contexts over the whole course of the year in terms of like Mm. people talking about films not doing well or films not being, or Hollywood not taking risks. Um, I kind of feel like as the years go on, that Abrams character is going to become emblematic of a certain kind of, uh, cultural gatekeeper character. Mm, absolutely. Um, I'm surprised we didn't see that phrase pop up in any of the leaked Sony emails. <laughs> um, why can't I do Cleopatra, says Angelina Jolie. Yeah, I don't see a lot of money in there. Um, great cat movie. And you watch it and you think that Oscar Isaac is good. Like you say, a rising star. I'd really see him playing uh, Poe Dameron at one point uh, in a big franchise. Yeah, or Ad- Adam Driver and saying, I could really see him maybe playing a Sith. Mm. Oh shit! Yeah, it's a double Star Wars crossover. Yeah, all we need is uh, is Timberlake to show up somewhere, and we'll have the trifecta. Mm. Or that cat. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, um, it's widely available. It's on Netflix. Most Netflixes. So um, uh, get it where you can. Oh, did you the other day that like a lot of this top ten is available on Netflixes from around the world. So uh, yeah, we'll put on Twitter or something where they are, so you can find them. Um, anyway, yes. Uh, moving uh, into film, oh, number four. Um, uh, yeah, probably the fucking weirdest film on our list um, and certainly the one that just upset me uh, the most. Uh, we're talking about Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin. No girlfriend, really. Oh, I don't have a girlfriend at all. Very charming. It's better. If a winter's tale was kind of hard to kind of understand, like kind of just kind of simplify into a sentence or two, uh, under the skin is going to be a struggle. Uh, yeah, well, I think it's in terms of plot, it's very easy to summarize. Because uh, it's basically species. Um, it's uh, <laughs> alien in the form of a beautiful woman comes to Earth, uh, searching for men to um, do something with, um, and just kind of luring them in, kind of uh, sexual allure, and then taking their body's essence or whatever. But you know that doesn't really summer. That doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what a deeply weird and upsetting film it is to watch. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a science fiction film 
that's also an art film that stars an A-list star in Glasgow. Who drives around in a white van. (laughs) In a white transit van, essentially uh, kind of luring men into some kind of reality where they go into a kind of sick, sticky black glue and then kind of rot away and kind of become just a bag of skin, I guess. Yeah, pretty much. It's, uh, it's, uh, I think a large part of what's great about it is that the, it's, it's a film driven as much, if not more by its, uh, by its music than anything else. It's got a great score mm. by, uh, Mika Levi, also known as, uh, Mika Chu, which is a, uh, a, a score that is a uh, kind of deeply discordant and uh, has it has the, it does that thing where at times it sounds like sort of fairly regular music and you can kind of easily understand how this could be a, a conventional score and then it will throw in just like a moment of discord that makes you kind of tense up and realize that something deeply creepy and unnerving is going on mm. uh, the most aptly titled movie this year um because it certainly does burrow uh, under your skin um, and kind of kind of difficult to dislodge that kind of feeling that I kind of immediately needed a shower after watching it. Mm, I think it does a really brilliant job of uh, making the idea of being human feel deeply unnerving and alien, uh, mm. which is not something many films manage. Um, I think it, it does a fantastic job of uh, creating a situation in which normal things like eating chocolate cake or going to a club um, just seem you know, like utterly horrifying things. Uh, and mm. that is, uh, that is quite an achievement. And I think a large part of that is the music. Part of it is the, the cinematography, which is really kind of stark and, uh, kind of drains the life out of the, the of uh, everything on screen, uh, in a way that makes you feel really detached. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another one that's available on most Netflixes. So, uh, get it watched. Um, but yeah, um yeah just kind of brace yourself because it's pretty fucking weird shit's fucked up is all i'll say um and yeah like like the worst date movie could ever (laughs) you could ever go on (laughs) um yeah um especially if you're like what what are you doing after this Uh, well no me neither fine see ya (laughs) okay cool into the top three now um uh our our kind of uh, number three film uh is is a film that kind of some of you could well easily have missed missed because it's kind of just kind of slipped away without much of a trace, but um, I saw that you were very enamoured with it when you saw it, and um, I I watched it and I was you know pretty blown away by it, if I'm honest. Uh, um, given that it's kind of a pretty straight tale told very very well, um, we're talking about Blue Ruin. I thought there'd be something on the news, but there's nothing. Uh, what's that about ed uh, blue ruin is a revenge film about a, a man who uh, is kind of homeless he, he doesn't really have anything uh, in his life and he finds out that the man who was uh, convicted for killing his parents many years before is about to be released from prison so he uh, sets his mind to uh, killing the man. And you think, okay, so it's going to be just like him going after the guy for the whole film. Uh, he doesn't. He gets him in like the first 10 minutes um, and he like kills the guy. Uh, uh, but he you know, makes a couple of mistakes, which then rebounds on him throughout the rest of the film. So it's, it's kind of a very 
uh, realistic and darkly funny take on uh, a concept that has been done many times before. Um, and yeah, it kind of it highlights that whole thing um, of kind of like the pointlessness um, and emptiness of revenge that like, uh, I kind of always find yourself having this argument with people who are like pro-capital punishment. They're like, and they always say, well, if your mum was killed, uh, would you kill the person that killed her? And you'd be like, well, if I did, would I be like, oh shit, yeah, we're all square now. So is everyone, everyone all right? Yeah, let's just go home and carry on our lives. And it's just this kind of unremitting kind of circle or cycle of kind of grim bleakness. And uh, Blue Ruin taps into that quite nicely because he gets his revenge very quickly, like you say. But then you kind of realise that he's kind of got to go a little bit further if he's going to uh, kind of purify that guilt. And then he realises that he's all kind of gone a bit too far and then it just gets fucking horrible. Yeah, because obviously it, it isn't an eye for an eye sort of thing. It's a case of going, uh, you know, this guy killed my two parents, I kill him, but he also has a family who uh, are not going to take kindly to the guy being death and they know they they know who killed him and so they, they kind of start chasing after him. And uh, I think what's really great about it is that uh, Macon Blair, who, who's the lead, um, he projects this real fragility to him. Mm. Uh, it kind of reminded me a bit of Ray Fiennes in David Cronenberg's Spider, where he's like a character who is, who you get a sense is just a little, is only just managing to keep it together at every possible moment. Mm. Uh, and but who is then placed into a situation in which he has to be he has to kill people he has to do tremendous violence against people and he just you get the feeling that he's just constantly uh on the verge of just breaking down into tears and wanting to give up and not being having any uh opportunity to do that i think that emotional fragility is what lends the film a lot of its uh a lot of its power mm. And he hasn't got a fucking clue what he's doing. Mm. He doesn't know. He doesn't know how to fire a gun. He doesn't know anything. He makes a, an absolute hash of literally everything he tries to do, um, and it, not in a comedic sense. It just kind of drives this almost kind of unbearable tension. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, like Death Wish if uh, it, you'd cast John Daly instead of uh, Charles <laughs> Bronson. You know, just someone mm. who really has no clue what to do, but has to keep kind of struggling through it as it goes along and mm. i think that that is uh that's one of the things that's really great about it and also that's where you get a lot of the really darkly funny laughs because to an extent a large part of the film is how is he going to fuck up this next part yeah and how's he going to get out of the terrible scrape that he's found himself in yeah and uh i forget the name of the guy who directed it but he's got a film out next year i think he's going to be definitely one to watch uh jeremy salnier i believe his name is Right, okay, yeah. Note he's, that down, people, because he's, he's, he's going to do some good things, I think. Yeah, he's got a film. It's called The Green Something, so he obviously likes colours. Um, but that, that's a <laughs> film starring uh, Patrick Stewart as a neo-Nazi. Um, oh, fucking could, awesome. Considering his lack of hair is a role you would have thought he would have gravitated to for co- at some point in the last 20 years. But yeah, uh, that's a film that I'm very, very excited about. Mm, absolutely, and we'll probably get to talk about that. Uh, in the new year but yeah mm. for this year blue ruin seek it out um it's chuffing marvelous okay down to the last two films um we're going to talk about today um and uh our number two films so just one off the top spot but not by much um is um oh a bit of uh poncy foreign muckhead uh we're talking about the new film from the darden brothers uh two days one night <laughs> Je note. 
avec deux P. À vous de nous donner le mois et l'année de la sortie de la chanson qui arrive. Ce sera un peu plus difficile. Oui, on m'a chez Julien. Uh, as much as I was disappointed to find out this wasn't some kind of follow-up to Two Girls, One Cup, um, it is a truly masterful piece of work by two directors who kind of ratchet tension out of uh, ordinary, everyday situations, uh, who managed to make a kind of a thriller about a woman trying to keep a job, um, which is quite remarkable, driven by um, an absolutely mesmerising performance from Marion Cotillard. Yeah, I think... Uh, this is something that uh, I think anyone who's, who's familiar with their last couple of films will uh, recognize the trick that the Dardenne brothers uh, do, which is that they take a concept that could be uh, kind of melodramatic. That's like in um, the child where the idea is that the young man sells his baby to rush it to, uh, to gangsters and has to try and get him back. And this one, a, a woman has to go around and convince her fellow workers to give up their bonuses that she so that she can keep her job. And that their ideas that could have been played kind of very big, uh, and and you know could still have been good, but maybe wouldn't have been uh, you know anything particularly special. But they kind of take all of the melodrama out of it and just prevent, present it in a very kind of stark way. Uh, but this one, I think, what's really great about it is it has a, it has such a amazing inbuilt structure to it, which I kind of lang- I I, I uh, likened it to Twelve Angry Men. Mm, except, yeah, definitely. Except it should be called like sixteen, sixteen uh, 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 uncertain people. Um, mm. Because sixteen uncertain Belgians—that's what <laughs> I'd call it. Uh, so she has to go around and she has to talk to all the people she works with to try and convince them to change their vote because the, the first vote where people voted for her to be fired had been there had been some sort of tampering with it and someone was trying to intimidate everyone to vote against her. And so over the course of a weekend, she goes around to talk to all these people. And uh, what's great about it is each conversation uh, is is unique and, and different because she has a different relationship with everyone she works with. And you can really see that in, in the way that Cotillard uh, handles herself with people. She really does alter her body language in sort of small but, but really uh, interesting ways in order to uh, convey how she relates to this person outside of the the, the the given scenario um and in the information she imparts to people some people she's really open about and it says you know oh i've got six votes you know if you if you vote for me then that's seven and some people she won't tell because she knows that they're not going to vote for him and they might try and mess it up for her and uh, the dardens you know get every permutation of that uh of those conversations out that they can and really keep you guessing as to what the outcome is going to be yeah, and it's um, like I say. I think you said that um, uh, Ezzy Davis's performance from Babadook was your performance of the year. Uh, Marion Cotillard's is definitely mine. Um, you just kind of can't really take your eyes off her. I mean, it's hard given that she's in every single fucking frame of the film practically. Um, but yeah, it, it's 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 a performance like you say that could have been uh, quite big and melodramatic. But you know, um, those guys really know what they're doing, don't they? Mm, and I think it's a it's a real compliment to her performance that she doesn't seem out of place. Whereas usually they make films with kind of unknowns or people who are just you know character actors who don't headline Christopher Nolan movies. Um, mm. And she's obviously a big Oscar winning film star, and she feels completely natural to this very uh, low key, um, low key, high stakes world that they create. Mm. 
I mean, without wanting to it'd be kind of the same thing, you know, one of the world's most beautiful women. Mm. Um, and it's never even a second thought that she is just a you know, workaday person who, who works in a solar panel factory. Yeah. And it's not just like, oh, they've not got as much makeup on as, you know, the way that they, they people who are incredibly beautiful are made to look less beautiful in most films. It mm. is, you know, she does present this idea of someone who is kind of battling with depression and uh has had a kind of a breakdown and is really trying to hold it together for herself and her family and is deeply scared about losing her job and what that might mean for her and you know if you know she will hurt herself and things like that and just the way that she presents herself there's this this you know this kind of weakness to her in that she is someone who has clearly been through a lot and still not entirely recovered but also as it goes along you can really see her kind of oscillate between completely devastated by her conversations with people and then you know kind of find some strength in that and you know, mm. a resolve to carry on absolutely and a resolve to carry on is what we must have dear listeners because we are at the final hurdle and uh, i have to say that you know uh this is probably we say our best year since 2011 but it's probably we've picked the most predictable winner um since 2011 when we picked the artist um this one was a real no-brainer it topped both of our lists um and i think it's the best film of the year by kind of some margin um we're talking about the grand budapest hotel you see there are still faint glimmers of civilization left in this barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity indeed that's what we provide in our own modest humble insignificant no fuck it i mean do you think this film uh uh, is going to uh, sweep the board uh, award season, or do you think it's just going to be forgotten about? Uh, I would hope so. I think that it is uh, Wes An- one of Wes Anderson's best, um, certainly one of his most enjoyable, one of his best staged. It's kind of got a wonderful screwball energy to it that um, I think is, it, it's kind of like, you know, his, the drollness of his live action films combined with the kind of manic energy of the fantastic Mr. Fox. Mm. So it kind of feels like a culmination of a lot of the work that he's done over the last sort of 10, 15 years, certainly over the last um, seven years or so. But it's also uh, got amazing central performance from uh, from Ray Fiennes doing some his best comedic work since uh, In Bruges uh, and also swearing inventively once again. Um, <laughs> and he just has, uh, but it's also like a lot of his films, there's this kind of very, subtle moving emotionality to it which is uh is really really captivating and powerful and it's just a kind of immaculately produced little morsel mm. i i've kind of criticized wes anderson in the past on this show um which is pretty fucking rich coming from me given that he's wes anderson um but i kind of said that around the time of life aquatic and darjeeling limited which are the two films of his that i'm not particularly fond of um, it kind of seemed that there was a a, a, a Wes Anderson shtick rather than a kind of style and a, and a thumbprint. Uh, uh, it kind of felt a little bit kind of forced to me. Um, and uh, you, you can see that in things like, you know, we talked about the Star Wars trailer coming out early, earlier this year and, you know, someone did a Wes Anderson version of the trailer and it's very funny and it's, you know, uh, kind, of, kind of bang on really. And it seems though, I, I, I think I was probably wrong which is you know that's crazy listeners to think that i was wrong about anything um but like grand Budapest hotel could easily be the, the most wes anderson wes anderson film right it's got everything 
that you know we think about in these kind of symmetrical uh, kind of compositions and you know your pastel colours and you know the French music, the lot. It's got everything like exactly that you kind of think of, but he's moving it uh, to be more kind of subtle emotionally, and it's uh, through the style and 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 through the. The, uh, the the kind of obviously kind of uh, this kind of elaborately constructed world that he makes. Um, he's telling stories that now um, that have got like way more emotional resonance. Mm, definitely. And he has a, uh, at the same time, he kind of ratchets up the comedy, but you know, it doesn't undercut the emotionality of it at all. Mm. You know, it, it's one of his more manic films and it's got this real kind of, uh, exhilarating energy to it but it doesn't feel like those two things are working against each other it really does feel as if he uh, has somehow figured out the exact perfect balance between on the one hand some madcap farce and a real uh, melancholy in a sense you know a, a, a love for characters who are out of time which is something that you you see in a lot of his work i think the kind of his quintessential characters are men who's best days are behind them or people who perhaps were born like 20 years too late for the kind of person that they are and the kind of world they want to live in um, mm. and i think that you know his in telling a story uh you know about a missing painting and you know kind of falsely accused of murder and things like that he has uh he he, he kind of finds the perfect um out uh out, outlook for that mm. it is a caper uh, don't get me wrong and it's a it's a rollicking one at that but the the, the kind of framing device um is really poignant and really lovely and beautiful without ever mm. kind of feel like you're being hit in the face with it um i'd say ray finds his performance is um uh enchanting uh nice to see him playing david niven uh mm. and uh well exactly as i would imagine david niven um and yeah just like i mean it is a a, a huge ensemble cast um and even some of uh um, the kind of Anderson regulars don't feel too shoehorned in, uh, even though they clearly are. Um, I, you know, I, it's just such a joyous film to watch and, and kind of get lost in. Um, you don't really care. I, I've watched it twice this week. Uh, I've kind of enjoyed the film that much. Yeah, I think it's it's like a lot of his his films. It's it's endlessly rewatchable because there's so much detail in every frame, and you can really appreciate some of the the more subtle character work. Um, but I think it's so that the construction of it is so elaborate and the world he creates is so kind of uh detailed that it, it kind of takes that element of his work to a whole nother level for me mm. and it features a scene where willem defoe throws a cat out the window <laughs> uh, which is which is brilliant i just kind of uh and everyone denies it happened when jeff goldblum's like do you just throw my cat out the window and his, <laughs> his sisters are like no 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 i didn't see that um yeah it's 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 a marvel of a film and and i'm you know very pleased to see it sitting atop our list yeah i think that uh he has his last sort of two or three films i think he's really started to hit his stride um in a way that you know uh, he, he seemed to be a little lost uh, in the early in the mid 2000s with life aquatic and darjeeling limited but something with seemed to be unlocked in him with the fantastic mr fox which has given us three really really great films in a row and i I, Mm. I, i'm glad that i can be really excited about a new wes anderson film again yeah it's um i I heard someone say and i think i might agree with that the 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 thing that probably unlocked that thing in wes anderson is working on someone else's material Mm. 
Um, which I mean, I don't know how true that is, but like it's it's you know something you could kind of pinpoint that down to. It's the first time he'd done that, um, which is you know perhaps what he needed. You know, take the pressure off himself, put his own stamp on something else. Um, but yeah, um, Grand Budapest Hotel, um, a grand film and a grand way to end. Um, just like to say thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Um, uh, we know there are a few of you out there, um, and you know thanks for your kind of ongoing support and stuff. I personally. Would like to thank Ed, who you may have noticed uh, increased frequency of episodes this year. Um, it's because he's now in charge of editing them, um, and uh, yeah, we just churn them out now because, like, I'm quite lazy, um, and you know he's pretty efficient. So thanks, Ed. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'd also think it's to thank the uh, the time difference because the way that we record, I think it would be that would have been insane to ask you to edit an episode. Uh, at 2am in the morning after we finish recording whereas for me it's not that bad to do it at like 9 at night with a cup of tea <laughs> yeah yeah too right so yeah I might just have to move to America to make it a bit easier but um, yeah um, that's 2014 we've got loads of cool stuff coming up in 2015 we've actually planned ahead like seriously um, uh, and we're going to start uh, next year with uh, our kind of uh, annual preview show we're going to talk about what's coming out in 2015 and if we're careful we could probably say that Foxcatcher is going to be in there for the third <laughs> year running um, but I think it might just sneak out um, but neither of us have seen it by then um, but yeah it might just sneak out before we um, uh, tell people to look out for it next year um, so yeah um, yeah we're going to do a preview show and then lots of other cool stuff besides um, and we can start building the hype for Star Wars uh, on 1st of January um, you know 12 months of that shit it's not going to get tiresome um, so yeah if you enjoyed the show please subscribe to us on iTunes find us on Facebook give us a little Twitter uh, and say hello uh, and until 2015 it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me